Please turn in your Bibles to the 59th chapter of Isaiah as we continue our series here on Isaiah. We are all appalled by the crimes in our country. Amy Grossberg, a college freshman, was in labor when she called Brian Peterson, Jr., her boyfriend, uh, late one evening in November 1996. The two 18-year-olds decided to rendezvous at a Comfort Inn in Newark, Delaware, where baby Grossberg was born at 4 a.m. Peterson reportedly wrapped the six-pound, two-ounce little boy in a trash bag and threw him in a dumpster. Uh, Peterson and Grossberg were not hardened criminals. Uh, they were a couple of, quote, nice kids from an affluent families. Uh, the trial is uh, currently uh, being conducted, if you've kept up with the news. September the 8th, 92, preschool Serene Baser and her mother Pam were on their way to her school, stopped at a stop sign, and the two young men walked over, uh, struck Pam, and jerked the car door open, and did what's come to be known as carjacking. The only trouble was that as they jerked her out of the car, she was entangled in the seat belt, and so they dragged her down the highway for a mile and a half, leaving a strip of blood for a mile and a half. Uh, these are terrible things. That's not just true in America, that's true all over the world. I was speaking to a missionary recently, and uh, he said that in Johannesburg this last year, they had 30,000 carjackings in that one city in one year. In, Johanna, in uh, South Africa, they have a homicide rate that is six times our homicide rate here in the United States, and ours is one of the highest in the world. Something's wrong, isn't it? Something's wrong with the human race. What's the matter with man? It's the history of man down through the years. Maybe Isaiah shed some light on this in this chapter. Notice here the reason God had not delivered Israel. Israel was being threatened by a foreign nation with invasion, and then uh, it had been predicted that they would go into captivity. Isaiah had predicted they would go into captivity in Babylon. And they cry out to God for deliverance. But notice the reason that God hasn't delivered, hasn't answered. In verse 1 of chapter 59, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Uh, it was not a matter of God's inability, but of their iniquity. The reason God was not answering when they called out to him. And uh, you get the recounting here of Israel's depravity. 
and verse 3. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt. They hold up their hands in prayer, but their hands are covered with blood of hurting and killing other people. <clears throat> in uh, verse 3, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue utters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. Uh, in uh, verse 5, they hatch the edge of vipers. They spin a spider's web. He compares them to snakes and spiders. God does, as he describes Israel, his nation here. In verse 6, uh, he says, uh, Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed innocent blood. What a description of the generality of people in Israel in that day. Now, uh, surely, surely you couldn't apply that to our nation or even to you and me. Surely God wouldn't describe us like that. But you know, that's exactly what the Apostle Paul does in the third chapter of Romans. Uh, he says this in Romans 3.9, what shall we conclude? He's talking about human nature. Are we any better? Not at all. We have all have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written. And any quotes from various passages in the Old Testament about mankind's sin. Now, there is no one righteous, not even one. Righteousness is the perfect obedience God's law requires. No one has it. Uh, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. They've all turned away. They've together become worthless. There's none who does good. No, not even one. And then he comes on down and quotes this passage we've been looking at. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Run in misery, mark their ways, in the way of peace they have not known. Uh, he takes this and applies it to all of us. Now, uh, we might say, well, wait a minute, Paul. How do, you, how do you justify that? Just because one group of people at one stage of time are like that, how do you apply that to all of us? But just think, that group had more light, more spiritual light than any other group that had ever lived prior to them. Here's Israel with their prophets, with the history of the nation, with God's dealing with them, Abraham and Moses and all these others. And they were like that. Uh, something terribly defective in human nature. Jesus said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication. All these things come from within and defile the man. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Now, it's not due to God making a defective man, it's due to man defecting from God, the first man, Adam. God said, Adam, in the day that you eat, in the day you disobey me, you will die. The day you eat of the tree that I've forbidden you to eat of. And he did eat, and he did die spiritually. He kept walking physically, but something changed within him. And that image of God became twisted and corrupted, so his mind became darkened, and his will became rebellious, and his heart, he loved the wrong things. 
And when he had children, he passed that on. And so you find one of his children killing the other one. And uh, that's the history of the whole human race descending from him. Now, man, in his depravity, we talk about total depravity. Remember Calvin, you can talk about Calvinism as tulip. And the first letter represents total depravity. It's not saying man's as bad as he could be or so society is as bad as it can be. Because God restrains that fountain of evil in man so that it doesn't erupt as badly as it otherwise would. God has what we call common grace. Not saving grace. Saving grace is when you are forgiven for your sins and your nature starts being changed. But common grace is his restraint on the whole of society to keep it from getting as bad as it would. Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian, puts it like this. He says, if God were to abandon mankind and give them up to the desires of their hearts, then earth would become a hell and no human society would be possible. But just as the fire in the earth is kept under control by the hard crust of the earth, and only now and then and only in certain places bursts out in awful volcanic explosions, so the evil thoughts and lusts of the human heart are suppressed and restrained from all sides by the life of society. God uses various things. He uses human government, he uses culture and so on to restrain this from erupting as badly as it otherwise would erupt. Now, uh, natural man's capable of some good things in a sense, but within there's this evil fountain. And the only solution is a new nature. Make the tree good and the fruit will be good. And uh, even after becoming a Christian, even when you have a new nature, a new heart, you still have a sinful nature. You still have a fountain of evil within. The flesh lusts against the Holy Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, Paul says. Uh, so you've got that battle going on within. But still, when you become a Christian, there is a fountain of good. The Holy Spirit, the new nature, then, and you are different, and there is a marked difference. Now, of course, how marked the difference is has to do with when you became a Christian. If you're a little child, it's not going to be so marked. If you're like I was, an adult, it's going to be more marked. Um, several years after my wife and I got married, we went back to Auburn, where I went to school, and went to a football game. Auburn won, I'm sure, and then we went on to the SAE house, where I'd been a member, and a big crowd. We got separated in the crowd, and she's getting a cup of coffee. Another fellow is there, and he says, uh, what's your name? She says, Barbara Barker. And he says, where are you from? She says, Birmingham. He says, you know, when I was here, there was a fellow in the fraternity with us by the name of Barker from Birmingham. Uh, Frank Barker, you any kin to him? She said, that's my husband. She, he said, really? What's old Frank doing? She said, he's a minister. He said, that's not the same guy. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's not. Amen. Uh, and, uh, but still, there is the fountain of evil there along with the good now and uh, the battle going on. Now, the result of this depravity of man, and look at verse 9 here. It says, uh, so, well, one, one result that Paul mentions in Romans 3, they, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. Since no one's kept the law, no one's going to be accepted by God on the basis of the life you've lived. That's not acceptable. 
That's, that's not the way. There must be some other way. God cannot accept us on that basis, says Paul. Now, notice here the results of the depravity. Uh, the continuance in misery of Israel as they cried out for help. In verse 9, it says, uh, So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, and all is darkness, for brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. She's still in darkness. Uh, the, the consciousness of guilt. In verse 12, Our offenses of many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. Rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God. So this consciousness of guilt and the abuse of justice, excuse me, the absence of justice on a public level in verse 14. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. That was the result. Truth has stumbled. The King James says truth is fallen in the street. Now just look at our nation. Look, boy, if you want an illustration of truth is fallen in the street. Boy, we've got it. As you look at our government and so on. Man alive. Uh, I was uh, recently asked to be in a group of people drawn from various sectors of the city here to uh, meet the, the downtown meeting where they, you had businessmen and you had people from from. Uh, public groups of different kinds and colleges and so on and several ministers and they said what is the greatest problem that our city faces and they gave you a little card and you're supposed to put it on and they had a fellow conducting this and he's going to write it up on the blackboard what is the greatest problem that our city faces what did, what did I write on my card sin and it's interesting I was the only one who wrote sin but every other problem that was mentioned had its root in sin. That's the basic problem. That's the, that's the cause of all of the situation that they had and that we had. Now, notice here the response of God. We see the reason God hadn't delivered them when they cried out to him. The recounting of the depravity and the result of this depravity where if truth is fallen in the street. The response of God to the dilemma. In verse 15... It's the last part of that says, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. God is displeased at this, that humans act this way. And look at what else. God wondered that there was no intercessor. That's the way the King James reads. The NIV says, says, he saw that there was no one, he was appalled that there was no one to intervene. King James says, he wondered that there was no intercessor. Now what a striking phrase, God wondered at this, or God was appalled at this. We don't think of God as wondering about anything, do we? And uh, J.A. Alexander, who's written one of the best commentaries on Isaiah, he says, the extraordinary character of this description and the very violence which it seems to offer to our ordinary notion of the divine nature unavoidably prepares the mind for something higher than just the deliverance from exile that he was in time going to bring about. 
when it says God wondered that there was no one here to intervene, no intercessor. And in effect, what he's saying, God's amazed at, surprised by the fact that there's no human solution to this thing. There's no king that can come along and change it and make men do right. There's no human solution to the problem of sin and the depravity of man. And so God comes up with a solution to the problem. Notice his solution in verse 16, the last part. So his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. God says, well, I'll have to solve the problem myself about the sinful depravity of man. How would he do it? Verse 17, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. God said, I'll come down and I will avenge their enemies. I will deal with their enemies. I'll take care of the enemies. And Calvin, in commenting on it, says our real enemies weren't the Babylonians or something. Their real enemies, our real enemies are sin and Satan and death and hell. And God himself would tackle our enemies. The situation about this depravity and all. And what the result would be, look at the result when God tackles it. In verse 19, from the west, men will fear the name of the Lord, and from the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. There'll be a worldwide kingdom of people who are different, who serve him, who fear him. Uh, they will revere his glory. That's what the result will be. And why this would be the result? In verse 19, for he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The King James translates that a little different. It has, for when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. The presence of the Lord with his people. That will establish this kingdom and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The presence of the Lord with his people. And, uh, and then the promise of a redeemer will be fulfilled. Uh, for Zion, he had promised Zion a redeemer. In verse 20, the redeemer will come to Zion. Now, redeemer. Redeem means to set free upon payment of a price. One, one who will set them free. Free, but will pay a price, will come. One who will ransom them. What's that all about? Kenneth Guire has written a book, Windows of the Soul, and he tells how, as a new Christian in 1969, he was struggling with a problem. Why did Jesus Christ have to die? Jesus called out to his father and he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, if there's any other way we can forgive men without me dying for their sin, I would rather not do it. Lord, he sweat blood. Now, if a, you know, Jesus says uh, if a father asked uh, anything of his uh, son, asked uh, of his father a stone, will he give him a serpent? No, he'll give him bread. 
And they said, your Father in heaven delights to give good things. Why didn't the Father answer him? Son, it's not necessary. It's at that point as he struggled with that, he went to the movie Camelot about King Arthur and his round table. Here's this good king, in a sense. And yet, and he loves his wife, Guinevere, but his wife commits adultery with his key knight, Lancelot. And uh, as she is in a clandestine and clandestine encounter with uh, Lancelot, the king's enemy, Mordred, catches Lancelot and Guinevere. And he tells the king, King, you got to do something about this. Your wife is guilty of adultery. You know the law, king. Your law, the law is that adultery, anyone who commits adultery will be burned at the stake. She must go to trial. And so she goes to trial. On a day dark and drear came to trial Guinevere. Rule the jury for her shame. She be sentenced to the flame. As the day of execution nears, people come from miles around. Would the king let her die? Would the king let her die? There was wonder far and near. Would the king burn Guinevere? And after that chorus, Mordred enters the scene and uh, he says, Arthur, what a magnificent dilemma. Let her die, your life is over. Let her live, your life's a fraud. What will it be, Arthur? Do you kill the queen or do you kill the law? And uh, his heart, he wants to set her free, and but then he'd be bending justice. Uh, she must burn, she must burn, spoke the king, she must burn. And the moment now is here for the end of Guinevere. Slow her walk, bowed her head, to the stake she was led. In his grief, all alone, from the king came a moan. Well, that was a situation our king was in. Only he had a solution to the problem. He took off his crown, he stripped off his robes, and he clad himself and came into this world and put himself on the stake, sent his son, in effect, to take our guilt, to burn for his Guinevere. As uh, Guire says, Without even looking for his Guinevere to look up in repentance, the king stepped down from his throne, took off his crown. You can imagine, in a sense, uh, Mordred or Satan saying to God, God, what a magnificent dilemma. Let them die. Your life is over. Let them live. Your life's a fraud. Which will it be, God? Do you kill your world or do you kill the law? That was his dilemma, but he solved it in that way. That's what we've been reading. God wondered that there was no human instrument to intervene, so he himself would come and do it in the person of his son. And that's the reason why God can't overlook his own law. And uh, yet he loved us so much. And here was his solution, that he himself would pay for the broken law in the person of his son. And on that base, basis, offer forgiveness. Here's this promise of a redeemer. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? 
died he for me who caused his pain, for me to him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Notice for whom the Redeemer comes. In verse 20, the last part, it says, The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. Those who repent of their sins. Calvin says, Hence infer that we cannot be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ unless we first repent of our sins. Not that, not that our repentance adds to the work of Christ. He did all that was needed. But still, we don't receive that gift of salvation, Christ himself and forgiveness and so on, unless we repent, unless we turn from our sin and yield our wills to him, purposing to obey him and place our trust in him as the king who went to the stake for us. Now, and who rose from the dead. Now, not only do we have here the presence of the Lord, that when the enemy comes in like a flood, he will lift up a banner against him. And not only do we have this promise of the Redeemer coming to Zion fulfilled, but notice the permanence of the Spirit and the Word with his people. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. You're a Christian. God says, this is my covenant. If you've repented, this is my covenant. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. That's one to write down somewhere in your Bible and say frequently, Lord... My children, or their children, my grandchildren, Lord, you said that the words you put in my mouth will not depart from my mouth or from the mouths of my children or the mouths of their children from this time on and forever. What a promise. And it is our part to play in it. We've got our part to train them in the ways of the Lord. But we rely on his promise to cause that training to be effective. Well... For the Christian, uh, this passage here uh, should give us great courage when the enemy comes in like a flood. The Lord will lift up a standard against him. The gates of hell won't prevail uh, against his church. And his spirit and his word will be with us and with our seed. Great courage, great comfort. You've got a problem. You're calling out, Lord, help. Whatever your problem is. The Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save, and his ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. And if you're dealing with sin, then you can expect him to act. If you're really dealing with it. A great challenge. God wondered that there was no intercessor, so he sent his son. And then the son, having come, said, as the father sent me. So send I you. We're sent to a needy world that there is no other solution. We're sent to be the final part of that solution as we take the word to people who have no hope apart from that, who cannot change apart from that. 
As the Father sent me, and think of how he came and how he obeyed, so send I you. I wonder if I wonder if the Father wonders at how we respond to that. Are we responding appropriately to that sending of us? Are we responding in terms of reaching our family, our friends, our neighbors, those at the office, our school, whatever? Are we responding in terms of reaching our state and our nation and around the world? That's our job. And Jesus came as the Father sent him. We must go. Wales Goble in his letterhead that he sends out says, If not me, who? If not now, when? And that's what we need to say to ourselves. For the non-Christian, if you're here or you're listening and you're not a Christian, does God wonder about that? Does he wonder that you haven't responded and all the chances you've had, all the opportunities, maybe some unusual things that have happened that got your attention and yet you haven't responded. Does God wonder at that? Do you wonder at that? Do you wonder that you haven't responded? If not now, when? If not Christ, who? Why not today respond? Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you're a Christian, uh, is there some area of your life that's preventing God from really undertaking on your behalf as he wants to? Some area that you need to deal with. Uh, what about this matter of being sent locally and around the world? Are you going? Are you reaching out? Are you seeking to obey that sending? What about your children and that promise and claiming that promise for our children and our grandchildren? What about uh, if you're not a Christian? God wonders that you haven't responded. Do you wonder? What about today? Pray if you've never really surrendered to Christ, never repented, never trusted him as the one who went to the stake to pay for your sin. But you want to do that. Pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for cladding yourself when there was no other solution in coming and going to the stake for me. And I do trust you to remove my sin, to be my Savior, to forgive me. And I purpose to obey you. Come into my life. Amen.